Howdy, friends! I'm Cablasto. And I'm Yoli. And we host a podcast called Spaghetti and Freddy, in which we discuss both spaghetti westerns and the Nightmare on Elm Street film series. That's right. And a new episode drops every Friday morning. Just search for Spaghetti and Freddy to find us. Thanks for listening. Ciao for now. Hey, ¿qué onda? Esto es Ismael. I just want to let you know that the film that we're covering today is very sexually explicit, and we do dive into that aspect of the film. So, if that's not something you're comfortable with, we won't hold it against you. Just skip over to the next episode. No se lo enseñen a mi ama. Anyways, somos relativos. Hola y bienvenidos a Real Latinos. My name is Ismael. This is Ron. Hey. And this is Guti. ¿Qué pasó? ¿Qué pasó? And we are here to talk about Latin American movies. Um, so let's just get started. Uh, Guti, what you been up to, man? Oh, man, I've been up to a lot. I actually just got back from watching Rogue One in IMAX. Yo. At my local theater ahead of Andor. I don't know if you guys caught that little log. It was incredible. I don't think I caught it in IMAX the first time it came out. Um, so it was it was awesome to see. And for my money, it's still the best Star Wars film TV show put out to date by Disney. And um, and it was just so great revisiting it because I I mean I haven't had Star Wars in my life in maybe like a year. I think it's the last time I saw a Star Wars film. So it was it was good to kind of revisit that and. Uh, and then I also watched one other film uh, since we last talked. I watched The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I saw that. Now, Dude. I had been putting off watching this film because of the fact, you know, I read the synopses and then I knew it had to do with kind of the barrier in Marin County. And I thought it would probably be an emotional movie for me to watch. Um, and it'd be really tough to get through. And. I mean, it was, it definitely was. Uh, but yeah, if you guys haven't seen it, I definitely recommend seeing it. It's it's probably still one of the most beautiful first feature films I've ever seen. And it's a totally heartfelt tribute to what you know we identify as home, right? I, it's just unbelievable how he's able to get every aspect of San Francisco in there. Um, I mean, people that I've met, because I lived there for three years after college, people that I met just in the city. Uh, and then, you know, before that, when I was, when I was in my childhood, um, it was just, it was just ridiculous to see how many people he was able to fit in there, all different types of walk uh, and walks of life. Yeah. I think, he, I think the, uh, the director, his family has been in the city for five generations. So you can tell like every bit of knowledge, um, that he has of the city and his love for it is in that film. I mean, what a, that's, that's a great, great freaking movie. Highly recommend it too. Uh, what about you, Ron? What have you been catching up on this week? Um, what, so, uh, 
Guti on his letterbox profile has a Peter Bogdanovich quote. It says, there are no old movies, really, only movies you have already seen and ones you haven't. And uh, so I was kind of inspired that, by that to uh, rapid fire a bunch of movies that I hadn't seen. So I did, uh, in one sitting, uh, Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes, immediately oh, followed by Black Narcissus. The elusive A-B. Red Shoes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Powell and Pressburger like... Famed, famed fanatic here. Guti I mean, can that, tell you all about it. Yeah. Oh man. Are Paul and Presbyter Latino? Are they? I, don't know, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm t- I'm telling you, based off their color palette, we could get into the red shoes, but one of us hasn't seen the red shoes, so I don't really. I don't know who that is. Shame, dude. Honestly, I don't shame, know. I don't know. For who shame, here has for not shame, seen the sir. Red for shame. Yeah. I mean, I I hadn't seen it up until four days ago, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not gonna give you too much crap about it. But, um, gotta get on that as well. Yeah. I, I will say Black Narcissus was a ride that uh I, I really enjoy movies that uh start one way and then by the end it's kind of a completely different movie. Um like the vibe definitely changes. Or at least to me it did, because I was not expecting the story to go the way that it did. I don't recall the name of the cinematographer and like the, the set decorator at the moment, but Oh um, Jack Cardiff and uh yeah, Jack Cardiff, Alfred, thank you. Alfred Jung, I think is the yeah. Um, but, uh, there's one specific map painting in, in Black Narcissus of, uh, a cliff's edge and yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, I think I stated in, in my letterbox review, like I'm not one that really gets down on like CG backgrounds and, you know, the volume, what everybody refers to as the dome that a certain company (laughs) uses a lot. I'm, I'm not one to really get down on that. That's, that's fine. Um, but yeah, seeing something with that much detail, you know, like painted by hand and put up, you know, in front of actors to work on, um, or in front of there, it feels different and it, you, you, but you know, you can tell that they're just on some soundstage, but it doesn't matter because there's so much love put into the production of it that it, it sells it. Um, and that's what, you know, uh, I really responded to in, in those particular movies. Yeah, so what's really interesting about that is Jack Cardiff was actually an art historian before he even became a, a, a cinematographer and studied for it. So he really knew, you know, the different paintings and styles, and he brought that into cinematography. And I mean, that's why it's, you know, everything looks like it's framed perfectly, um, like a painting, and then even the color palettes and, and whatnot. So it definitely helped him. Uh, become one of the, in my opinion, one of the best cinematographers ever. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Ismail, what about you? What have you been up to? Oh, well, I had a kind of a slow week. Uh, I caught E.T., the extraterrestrial, in theaters. I know for a fact I've seen it before. Mm-hmm. But, like, I watched it so long ago that doesn't even count. You know what I mean? I think it holds up. Yeah. I like, I like When I was in the movie theater, there was, like, uh, there was someone with like two kids, um, and the kids seemed to be really into it. Um, one of them kept on talking though, and I was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> oh um, man! But like, I I got used to. It. I was like, whatever, dude. Like, I, uh, I don't know. I I feel like I have a higher tolerance than most people of like movie theater etiquette. Like, I mean, mm. I don't like it. I don't like when people are are talking and stuff. But you know, I feel like I I'm fine with it for the most part, especially if it's a kid. You know, I'm just like, eh. yeah. 
there. Um, and and it's arguably a kids' movie too. So. I mean, yeah, I'm in a kids' yeah, exactly. movie, being mad that kids are watching it. Like, <laughs> yeah, like I was never exactly. upset. Like, like if I went to Spider Man, there was a kid in front of me, like getting all excited and stuff. You know, like I don't want to ruin his time. But I did when I saw No Country for Old Men in the theater. There was a oh. kid next to me on his DS. So like <laughs> oh, that I was like, you know, like, like kid, what are you doing here? So much yeah. bad parenting going on <laughs> on so many different levels. I saw ET two. Totally holds up. Uh yeah, then I watched uh, Emily the Criminal starring Aubrey oh. Plaza, Ooh, nice. Latina. Mm-hmm. Shout out! Uh, she she does a great job. Like I she, um, it's just this like thriller, great movie. Uh, four stars. I give ET four stars too. So, I mean, do with that what you will. Like, I don't know. Uh, nice. I, I'm not saying that ET or that Emily the Criminal is as good as ET, but you know, I just had the same amount of. Enjoyment, enjoyment from both. So, I mean, other than those two, uh, our feature film. Y tu mamá también. Oof. Okay. Yeah. Y tu mamá también. Two thousand one, directed by Alfonso Cuarón, starring Gal García Bernal, Diego Luna, and Maribel Verdú. Uh, I mean, what a movie. Uh, but <laughs> well, uh, let's let's get into some background about this film. Uh, Guti, why don't you go ahead and. Give us some some background about Ito Mamá Absolutely. So, as you know, anyone who's watched the film, there's a lot of layers here, right? Um, but this film is basically set in 1999 against the backdrop of Mexico's political and economic realities, um, specifically the end of the uninterrupted seven decades of presidents from the Institutional Revolutionary yeah, Party and the yeah and the rising of the opposition led by Vicente Fox. Um, so to kind of give you a taste of, of who the IRP were, um, there was a 1990 Peruvian writer named Mario Vargas Llosa, um, who famously, famously uh, described Mexico under the, the IRP regime as being the perfect dictatorship, stating, I don't believe that there has been a Latin America, any case of a system of dictatorship, which has so efficiently recruited the intellectual milieu, bribing it with great subtlety. The perfect dictatorship is not communism, nor the USSR, nor Fidel Castro. The perfect dictatorship is Mexico, because it is a camouflaged dictatorship. So a year later from when this film uh, was set place, the party would actually fall. So it went from uh, IRP to RIP. Hmm. Um, (laughs) Got him. (laughs) Damn. All right. I'll I'll do better next time, guys. Sorry. Yeah, so the scene of this film was first planted uh, between Chivo, Alfonso, and Carlos Coran back in 1991 uh, while they're filming uh, Alfonso's first full feature film, Solo con tu pareja. Uh, but shortly thereafter, Alfonso would go to Hollywood and make two different films, um, A Little Princess and Great Expectations. What, what was funny is after he made those two films, his son was actually turning 17, and he hated the fact like how teen movies will typically roll. You know, the way they romanticize um, relationships and whatnot is, like, very banal. So he wanted to make a, a film for himself and use it kind of under the, the road trip and and the dynamic between uh, kind of going from no experience to the experienced uh, characters of Julio and Tenoch, uh, use it to kind of examine Mexico's geography and politics and its people and culture. And, like, just even from straight off the bat, these layers are all over the place. I mean, you have Luisa Cortez, right? So 
she's named after the conquistador Gendarmo Cortes who conquered Mexico. Then you have Julio Zapata, right? Um, mm-hmm. who's one of the guys and he's named after Emiliano Zapata, who's the famous Mexican revolutionary. Yeah. And then the final character, Tenoche Itrubibe, um, was named after Augustin de Itrubibe, who's the former emperor of Mexico, um, after claiming independence from Spain. So that they definitely added a lot of layers, which we'll get into more here. Uh, so eventually Alfonso talked to Juan Carlos. He's like, listen, like, let's go back to that original idea we had and let's make a film that we wanted to make before we even went to film school, you know, no rules, no boundaries away from that system that you're just talking to talking about Ismael. Um, and so they, they literally want to go do that. And they wrote it in like 10 to 15 days uh they grabbed inspiration from like the french new wave which was really known for its like realism and almost documentary uh type of style and and even alfonso mentions that uh john luc godard who's one of you know the prominent figures of the french new wave uh he actually grabbed the idea of the omniscient uh narrator from from masculine feminine and then he even grabbed also inspiration from adu philippine um, which I guess the whole dance with Louisa, I guess there's a very similar shot to that, oh, yeah, in that yeah, film yeah. as well. Uh, and funny enough to kind of go into like my love for classic Hollywood and I totally caught on it uh, and more on that later, but he actually grabbed uh, inspiration also from, or at least Carlos said that he grabbed inspiration from Lubitsch, uh, Ernst Lubitsch and Blake Edwards, uh, who are pretty famous for making kind of like sex comedies mm-hmm. um, and definitely very layered movies um that would kind of just use the sex as a front and and then you know have layers underneath talking about more and you know more uh prominent topics uh so yeah the script was like very minimal they basically knew where they were going there was like a ton of rehearsals so it was like semi-improvised when they were shooting it and chivo being the you know the god that he is uh you know he basically filmed the entire thing on a handheld camera um and, and to make something look so natural like that, you know, realistic, but not be documentary as unreal. Um, so yeah. So Alfonso considers it his first conscious film that he ever made. Um, Cause basically for him, uh, I think this is kind of what you were alluding to too, as well is for him, it was the first two films he kind of made or anything before that was kind of him just trying to understand, you know, the techniques, the basics, understanding what cinema was all about, um, so he feels like this is kind of his, his first film where, you know, it's got those those layers. So I ended up winning the best screenplay at the Venice Film Festival and nominated for best original screenplay at the 2003 Academy Awards. Now, I haven't looked up who, you know, who hmm. won that year. I know uh, who won. This. Wait, who won? Tell me. Uh, Alma Devar. Talk to her. Uh... Okay, I, I don't know. Uh, I haven't yeah. seen it, but I was like, I it's the I only Amadevar I have seen, and that it's the reason why I've only seen one because I I wasn't a fan. That film is an entirely other conversation. It's a very very controversial film. Gotcha, um, gotcha. But uh, yeah, it's it's well made, but the subject matter and the way it's executed are incredibly controversial. Um, so, but anyway, yes, it, it won over this one, so. Interesting. Let's get started with Hikulatamin. So, Ron, how about you give us a, a quick synopsis about what this, what this movie is? Uh, I don't know that there is a way to give a quick synopsis of this movie. <laughs> There's a, a lot 
a quickie synopsis. So, yeah, let's, um, (laughs) all right, here here we go. Um, Itomama Tambien is the story of two best friends, Tinocha and Julio. Tinocha is from a wealthy and respected family, and Julio is from the working class. When their girlfriends go on a trip to Italy, the duo see it as an opportunity to have fun and live as bachelors. They meet a woman named Luisa at a wedding and hit on her relentlessly, trying to get her to accompany them to a fictitious beach called Heaven's Mouth before realizing that Luisa is married to Tinocha's cousin. But after discovering that her husband has been unfaithful, Luisa decides to go on the road trip with the two boys anyway. They get to know one another on the car ride, and the boys obnoxiously continue to try to impress Luisa with their juvenile antics and stories, while Luisa quietly falls apart every time she's alone. Looking to borrow some shampoo, Tinoch finds Luisa crying in her motel room one morning, and the two end up having sex. Julio witnesses this, and, upset, tells Tinoch that he previously had sex with Tinoch's girlfriend at a party while Tinoch was away. In the car later, Luisa notices the obvious tension between Tinoch and Julio, and assumes it's because of her actions with Tinoch. In an attempt to even the score and alleviate the mood, she has sex with Julio, which upsets Tinoch and leads him to tell Julio that he also previously slept with Julio's girlfriend. The two of them fight and only stop when Luisa attempts to leave them. Clearly not knowing where they're going, Julio and Tinoch stumble upon a beach that, fortunately for them, is actually called Heaven's Mouth. The trio spend the day with a local fisherman and his family. After dinner, they get drunk and joke about their sexual histories, discovering that Tinoch and Julio have repeatedly slept with each other's girlfriends. Hulu even reveals that he has even slept with Tinocha's mama tambien. Having cleared the air, all three dance together and go back to their room, where they engage in a threesome. The next morning, Luisa decides to stay at the small fishing village, and Tinocha and Hulu awkwardly make the long trip home in silence. Once they return, both of their girlfriends dump them, and Tinocha and Hulu lose touch. A year later, Tinocha and Hulu run into each other on the streets of Mexico City and catch up over coffee. Tinocha reveals to Hulu that Luisa died of cancer a month after their trip, and that she had apparently known about her prognosis the entire time they had been together. The two former best friends say goodbye, never to see one another again. Wow. I mean, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a pretty pretty intense movie. Uh, Ron, what's your what's your history with uh, Quaron and his movies? Um, this is actually the first of his that I ever saw. I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it about. I want to say like a year later when it debuted on like HBO or Showtime or one of those. Mm. Um, and I was about the age of the the guys in the movie. I want to say I was like 19 maybe when I saw it. I had heard about it before I saw it. I was a big, um, I was a big fan of Peter Travers, who at the time had been um, the film critic in Rolling Stone for a really long time. He was a big fan of it. I believe he gave it four out of five stars. And uh, so it was on my radar. So when I, I saw it on, um, saw that it was going to be on cable, I definitely made a point to check it out. Um, and I also, like, I had never seen anything like it before. Um, at at that point in my life, it was, you know, like action movies and, you know, like Adam Sandler and Chris Farley comedies and, and, and stuff like that. Like I had, I had seen classics like Casablanca and, and, and things like that, but um, I was definitely not as into quote unquote film as uh as i would become and so this is one of those first movies that uh really kind of opened my eyes to what else was out there beyond i guess the hollywood system and then you know after this he you know this is what got him the job on directing harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban which you know like i um and around that time i was i was getting into the harry potter series myself i had seen the first two movies i was reading the books uh azkaban was my favorite of the books 
and uh, subsequently Azkaban was was my favorite of the movies as well. Uh, and then you know I went and watched uh, all his previous movies. I've seen every one of his movies ever since. I'm I'm a big fan. Uh, according to my letterbox statistics, uh, he's my highest rated director. Yo. So if that's any indication of where this conversation is going, wow. um, I I would venture to say that he's my favorite contemporary director, at, at least. Oh so. my gosh. Yeah, baby. I mean, wow. Guti, I don't know how you're going to follow that up. What, what's your journey with, with Alfonso Cuadro? Oh man, um... Like most people in my generation, uh, I, you know, our, my first kind of experience with Quran was with uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, but that was even before. I mean, at that point, there, there's I didn't know what a director was. I just saw the actors and I was like, oh, wow, it's Daniel. Actually, I didn't even know it was Daniel Radcliffe. It was Harry Potter to me <laughs> and Rob Weasley. That's that's where I was at. Um, and obviously, now that I've watched that movie again as, as someone who... Uh, a lot older um i mean it's a total total just expertly made uh piece of art uh and i think it's it gets to a place where i don't think any of the other harry potter movies there goes to uh which could probably give you indication where it stands on my standings or slash rankings <laughs> of the harry potter series just it's it's the um, best one we don't need to beat around yeah. the bush there. it's okay. the best one we all know yeah. this. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, so, I mean, Prisoner of the Azkaban, and then not until our friends covered, uh, over at 70mm, covered Roma, uh, that was the next feature film that I watched from Alfonso Cuaron, which I absolutely loved, and easily gave five stars to, easily made my Goody's Hall of Fame, um, and reminded me so much of kind of like my my parents' history, uh, you know, of immigrating from Nicaragua and the reasons that they did. So, you know, Alfonso was already pretty high up there. And I had heard about this film and I didn't know what to really think of it. Um, but now that I've seen this film, I think, you know, I'm kind of around the same wavelengths as, as Ron, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it towards the end. I get my Ooh. final rating. Ooh. Man, no spoilers on ratings, but it's looking good. It's looking real good. Um, uh, what about me? So, with Alfonso, uh, I mean, yeah, my first movie for sure has got to be Harry Potter, right? Yeah, I was, I was so young. There's no way, like, wait, when did this this movie came out? 2001? Yeah. Um, there's no yep. way a four-year-old's watching this, you know? <laughs> so, like, um, I mean, the... Movie, I don't know. There was that kid playing his DS in No Country for Old Men, so uh, you never know. I mean, know. yeah, you'll never know. Yeah, <laughs> you'll never know. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, my first movie was um, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, and uh, I love it. I mean, it's the best It's the best Harry Potter. But other than that, like, uh, it was just a long time before I watched another one of his movies. The next movie that I saw of his was uh, Gravity when it came out. Um, I remember liking that one. Not super into it, but again, this this was before I was like really into watching movies, so um, I definitely need to give that a rewatch. But then after that was Roma, and I mean Roma is like a masterpiece. Like that's it's easily one of the best movies that's come out in like the last decade. I think it's so it's so well made. It's uh, this is not a Roma podcast, so I'll, I'll, we'll get into it. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I love it. Um, and 
And so then after that, I remember watching it también, I think, last year for the first time. Uh, and, I mean, I won't spoil my my, my, my rating, but, um, yeah, Cuaron, he's, he's, he's the man. Like, he's really, really good. Um, but I feel like we're beating around the bush here. I don't know. Uh, Ron, let's get into it. First point. Let's go. Oh, man. Okay, so I have to set the... Set yeah, you got to set here. the stage, set the bed. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, <laughs> put the I'll, sheets. Uh, okay. <laughs> Let's see. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about sex. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jesus. Ron, how dare so, you <laughs> talk about this? <laughs> uh, so, first of all, I just wanted to pull. I did. I watched um, uh, his first film, uh, Solo Contemporaria, and uh, <laughs> I realized that the very first thing you see in that movie and the very first thing you see in this movie are a couple in the middle of having intercourse. Very first frame, both films. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, I, uh, I, I kind of just noted that, but. Um, <laughs> What I what I wanted to to mention though is the depiction of sex in this film. Um, you know, this it came out in two thousand one. Like I I was uh, fresh out of high school when this came out. Around the time there was a lot of sex comedies and stuff. Um, I forget. I, one of you mentioned that uh, he wanted to do a different take on like the teenage coming of age story. Right. Um, I remember the the big movie when I was in high school was American Pie. And that has a very different depiction of of sex. There is I mean you could argue that the message is good, but the the way that it approaches particularly the sex scenes and um and how the characters act, you know, it's it's very exploitative, it's very um male gazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are a little bit earlier, but um, a film that I watched recently, so it's fresh in my mind, is uh, the Wachowskis Bound, oh. which has also Wes has Mackenzie shout out. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it also has a very explicit sex scene in it. However, that is a completely different take on it. Like the focus is very much the intimacy and the sensuality of it, um, and it like they sell it. It it com- it totally works in in that film. This film lies somewhere in between the two of those. Um, there's a lot of very graphic sex, but it's super awkward and super uncomfortable um, for the participants, for the, the viewers. Um, it, uh, you know, the the first and there's I want to say there's five sex scenes in it. Um, Around there, there's yeah. a, there's a lot. Yeah, uh, I, I wasn't counting. Yeah, <laughs> there's well, I mean, there's more if you count the solo stuff, but híjole. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's you know, there's them with their girlfriends, and then there's later with each of them with Louisa, and the way it's presented with her being being an older woman, especially like later when you realize um, what her story is, you know, and you kind of like unpack her reasons versus their reasons. And again, like the way that it's depicted, it's very graphic, but it's like, it's not sexy. It's, it's not, you know, it's not erotic at all. It's, it's super awkward and uncomfortable. And, um, I, I think 
that you know, especially like like you said, I didn't realize that uh, Koron's son was you know the age that he was when he made this. So I I think that he was trying to say something about about sex and about. I did note that it was very different than a lot of other films depict sexuality. Right. In fact, That's I think point. I think I like I think what's really interesting too is that you know. That's a really great point about how, like, most of the sex scenes that are happening are very, very awkward and very, very, like, um, like, Luisa, she's in control of the situation, and uh, Julian Tenoch are very much not. Um, but I do think that, like, when they have that threesome together, like, the first time, I feel like that uh, Julian Tenoch actually feel, like, in control of the situation is when they give each other a kiss like that was mm-hmm. i think that was like the most passionate moment of the whole movie which i'm sure that like um i'm sure it is for for just about all the viewers but like like the that kiss itself was the most intense the most like romantic the most like loving kiss than it was like in anything else in the whole movie in a movie full of like many sexual acts like that itself was the strongest thing i think or what do you think yeah no, yeah, definitely, and uh, I mean, because you know, I hadn't seen it before. I was totally caught by surprise, but it totally made sense to me. I don't, know, I don't know if it, if you guys it had the same effect to you guys, but mm-hmm. when they had that threesome and then they both kiss, like it totally makes sense. You know, Louisa even kind of mentions or alludes to it right when she gets oh, mad yeah. and kind of goes mm-hmm. off with the luggage or whatever, right? The you know, you guys might as well just fuck yourselves or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the line was, and, and I love the fact also too that. You know, Ron, kind of you're mentioning, like, it's not, like, glamorized, it's kind of boring, like, it's not, you know, it's gritty. I mean, it's realistic. It's Mm -hmm. sex. Like, I mean, has every, you know, encounter that you guys have had been, like, this big romantic swoon? Like, I don't know, like, La La Land or, you know, any of those other films or freaking, like, I mean, it's just, I think it just does a great job of just, like, this is sex. We're, We're all adults here, right? And hopefully, it is what it is, yeah. right? arguably, yeah. 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 hopefully, if you're, yeah. if you're not hopefully a four year old in a DS, and <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I, I just love that, and I also love the fact that, kind of to that point, too, um, he makes it kind of he, he kind of makes it seem like women aren't prizes, right? They aren't mm-hmm. conquests yeah. or targets, even though that's very much what Julio and Tenoch feel right. like in the very beginning, but by the end of it. Um, one can argue that you know they've had that experience with Luisa, and they no longer have those those you know thoughts. I mean, maybe it might come in and creep in because you know of everything that they experience as far as like media, and because that's basically what not everything, but you know, there's a lot of media out there that unfortunately kind of puts it into that context. Um, but I think that you know, going back to making a film for his his 17 year old son at the time. That's maybe one of the lessons that, that he's giving to them or giving to him, you know? Yeah. I mean, especially for something that is a teenage male centric tale, um, even like the amount of nudity, there is way more male nudity in this than there is female nudity. And then like the times that there is female nudity, it's not, you know, like when she's on the beach, it's not, it's not like an eighties, like sex comedy. It's, you know, it's very matter of fact. And the stuff with them, I, I'm a, this is going to be awkward. I'm a big <laughs> proponent of full frontal male nudity. There it is. Um, there it is. I, and not, we got him. Because, 
<laughs> for for two no, reasons. but I agree. I like hundred yeah. percent agree. But go on. Yeah, for for two reasons. One because um, and I I remember this distinctly from when I saw Forgetting Sarah Marshall in the theater. There are two things that tend to make straight white males uncomfortable. One of them is seeing other males nude, and the other is seeing other men cry. And I like the idea of like you know challenging that uncomfortability uncomfortability um but the other thing is uh and i learned this from uh listen to amy heckerling talk about fast times at ridgemont high uh that was one of my favorite films when i was in high school and um there's a lot of sex and a lot of female nudity in that and there's one particular sex scene that takes place in um in a changing room at a at a pool and she shot um an equal amount of, of nudity between both actors. But when the studio got a hold of it, they left in all the stuff of Jennifer Jason Lay and they cut out anything of Robert Romanus. And I remember hearing her I um having a conversation with Cameron Crowe who wrote that movie about how um basically how unfair, you know, the the Hollywood studio system is and how um you know women are always objectified and how um frequently if you want to get you know if you're if you're an actress and you want to get you know a good role it's you know expected that you're you know going to show your body and a lot of you know like you know men don't really have to deal with that and at you know at 16 or 17 or however old i was when you know like i heard amy amy heckling said that you know me being you know like a stupid teenager i never really thought of that before but um yeah like it you know like that's kind of always stuck with me and i do i appreciate especially you know like back then when i saw this movie i that's another thing like i had never seen male nudity on screen before i don't think um and and, and it definitely struck me um especially how like casual it was mm-hmm. oh like when they're when they're in their shower and uh yeah. yeah it's just letting it all hang out you know what i'm saying yeah. um and what i also think is really interesting like really important too is that like you know male nudity is hardly ever in films right and one it's already unfair to all the female actresses that are kind of like like borderline forced to be nude in a lot of these like sex comedy movies um and another thing too is that like many times that male nudity does come up in movies it's usually like a punchline or it's usually like right like uh it's usually like something like like omg so random right and um but here it's just like this is the human body and it's just it's just it is what it is and um quadron's really good with that like here and in roma um you know spoilers in roma there's also a uh, full frontal male nudity and yeah. um solo contuporea too yeah 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 he like quadron he's just he's just putting it all out there you know what i mean so um thank you for 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 leading us there, Ron. Yeah, that was a, uh, for taking the plunge. Uh, so, um, uh, Guti, what about and you? I apologize for all the listeners that we lost. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but, uh, but, but I mean, it's, it's worth talking about because it's something that is definitely still in the, in, since the beginning of time with film, right? Like that's always been in there and people don't have those conversations about how women are depicted and, they're always unfairly kind of treated and how they're handled with in, in the Hollywood studio system. So it's worth having these conversations um, and pointing out, you know, when we do feel that, you know, it's been handled with respect and 
and with grace and and you know kind of leveling the playing field here where you know males are also uh shown nude and and part of these kind of awkward sex situations as well and before we move on i do just want to acknowledge we do recognize that we're three dudes talking about this so i mean we would love uh, uh, a feminine perspective if anyone wants to uh you know like write in or, or, or absolutely absolutely in fact no. yeah i was gonna do the exact same thing i was gonna say like okay. full disclosure somos tres vatos like we are just three dudes um so obviously we cannot comment anything about the female perspective so um to take everything we say with a grain of salt you know what i'm saying yeah. so um yeah uh, so yeah, Guti, what about you? Do you have any, uh, any points that you'd like to make so far about Utamatamian? Yeah, so I love how the, the theme, uh, that everything is transient kind of permeates all over, all over the film. Like, you know, there, there's the example when they're on the, on the road trip where the narrator starts talking about how, uh, you know, it's been like 10 years, you know, if they would have been met at that location at that same spot, you know, 10 years earlier, they would have seen like, graphic crash and a woman uh, bawling her eyes out. And then, you know, there's also that passing shot um, that we see of the, the moral on the road. Uh, and then there's kind of like Luisa's quote towards the end, where it's like, life is like the foam. So give yourself away to the, like the sea. Uh, and then kind of at the end, how, you know, the narrator talks about how Tenochtitlan and Julio will never see each other again. Uh, it, it, there's just something about that idea and Quran kind of playing with that. That's just, it's just like hauntingly beautiful, but it, but it's so true. Like, I mean, how many friends have you guys had, you know, from your childhood, high school, college that like mean everything to you. Right. And, and maybe you've never, you know, you haven't talked to them again. You like, you thought you were going to be lifelong friends and really, I mean, life happens, you know, each of you have different experiences. And if you do even meet later, uh, kind of like how we see the, Tenoch and, and Julio at the end at the, the coffee shop, like, you know, they're not the same people because mm-hmm. they've, they've just had different experiences. And so I really, really enjoyed that theme. And it really reminded me also of, have you guys seen the before trilogy? Yes. Linklater? Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if Quran ever met Linklater before making this, or I know he, you know, he had Ethan Hawke in one of his films. So maybe they like shared notes or something because Linklater also has that as kind of a theme throughout those films. Uh, and there was one specific quote that just immediately went to my head uh, while watching this film where um, basically one of the ladies in the film, she says, you know, it's just, it's just like our life. We appear and we disappear and then we're so important to some, but we're just passing through. Right. And I don't know. It's just, whenever a director kind of talks about that theme, it just fills me with so much emotion and kind of thinking of how, you know, those friends that we've lost, the places that maybe we've gone and visited, uh, how those no longer kind of look the same that maybe we had experienced in our childhood. Um, and it's just, it's just really, it's just really powerful and, and philosophical really. Uh, to kind of talk about those topics and and you know sometimes when you walk down to a beach near an ocean or you go to your favorite part to kind of just be by yourself and and think and self-reflect on your life those are the type of questions you kind of ask yourself and and i love the fact that alfonso brought that up 
Yeah, that's a really great point, Gautin. One of the things that I wanted to talk about was something that you were talking about early on, I think, in your point, about um, of what they would have seen on that highway if they were, uh, if they were have been there like 10 years ago. And they talked, like, what resonated with me a lot was like the whole idea of life and death because of um, the Las Cruces, the, the cross that, that's on... Um, it's on the mountain. Um, there's like three, four, or five crosses, and all like signaling, you know, the life that was lost in that crash. And what I think is so powerful is that like Cuaron, well, both Cuarones, because they both worked on it. Um, they didn't have to talk about that like not one bit. You know, they like they could have just crossed the the crosses, and um, and nothing like and and just left it alone. But uh, it had me thinking, like, because, uh, I mean, I'm I'm from I'm from uh, a trans border, so I'm from uh, both Mexico and the U.S. Uh, I cross often, um, and something that I have noticed in both uh, sides of the highway are like these crosses, and like to some at at some point, it just becomes like noise, you know, like it's another cross, right, but like yeah. it's so sad to see that like. Like every cross has its own story, and then Cuaron, both of them, they put that story there, and it makes you like really reflect on like any cross that you pass now. It's like oh snap, like there was a story behind this, and um, it's just like really, really sad to see. You know, it's just um, it's just insane, and all that during like a road trip. You know, a, a fun road trip movie. Like I can't believe that happened. Yeah, and then another thing is that like they. Cuaron, you know how like he likes to uh during the movie like he puts he puts the the car like in the background and he has something else in the foreground mm-hmm. and like I don't, like watch it again and then look to see like there are so many times that he uses crosses in the foreground and in the background like it's it's like everywhere it's littered everywhere throughout the movie um and I think that's just really intense so um and yeah, again, like all this in a road trip movie. Like I cannot believe that like he did that. Um, what's another point that you have about this movie? Um, I guess the other thing that I wanted. This is kind of a, a personal point. Um, like I said, I was I was about I want to say nineteen when I saw this, and uh, I haven't seen it since. So it's been almost twenty years. Um, not too long after this came out. Uh, a movie called Lost in Translation came out. And that one was another one of my favorite films. I uh, really related to, to Scarlett Johansson's character in it. Like I, you know, like I, I kind of felt lost at the time. I was, I, I wasn't living with my parents anymore. I'd moved in with my grandparents, so it wasn't completely on my own. Mm-hmm. But um, I, for the first time in my life, I wasn't living with my parents or my siblings or anything. And I had, um, you know, like I, I always had a social life and stuff, but I, I definitely had a, a different type of freedom than I had had before. Um, but also that that kind of came with, you know, like not really knowing what I was doing or who I was. And um, and uh, that in Lost in Translation, that kind of hit me. And then in seeing this, um, you know, the, the two dudes in the movie, uh, you know, like I. I don't know that I identified with them, but I definitely kind of like, 
I felt like an anxiousness and a wanderlust and, you know, like, which I felt that they, they kind of gave off at the time. Uh, that being said, uh, this year, I watched Last, Lost in Translation for the first time since then. Oh, wow. Uh, much like I watched this for the first time since then. And you change a lot in about 20 years. And yeah. my perceptions of both of these films have, have changed. Um, for one, in Lost in Translation, I was focusing a lot more on Bill Murray this time around. I wasn't so concerned with Scarlett Johansson. Like her, her stuff kind of seemed, um, I don't want to say inconsequential, but, um, I, I wasn't really feeling it. And I will say that Bill Murray's character in that film is a complete douchebag, but, um, <laughs> I guess I understood it a lot more than like, I think when I was younger, I just kind of like thought of it as, as shtick. Um, but, uh, I kind of, I got what he was doing a lot more this time around. And similarly, this time around, um, the Diego Luna and Gael Garcia Bernal are excellent in this movie. Um, but oh, yeah, they're holy crap, are they obnoxious? Like, <laughs> I, like, I'm not gonna lie, for about the first 20 minutes of this movie, I was like, is, is this even, like, is this good? Like, I, am I, was I completely misremembering this? And, um, and after a while, I, I settled in, and I was like, okay, like, they're, you know, Quaron's doing something specific here, and uh, they still kind of, like, graded on me a little bit, mm. but um, but I, I got it, and, like, I got the characters, and I got what, what they were doing, um, but the thing that struck me this time was I, I realized that this movie belongs to Maribel Verdu. Um, this is 100% her movie, and... I didn't get that before because I didn't have the life experience that is required to understand everything that is going on with her character and her story and all the tiny little choices that, that she makes in the way that she moves, the looks that she gives them, the look that she gives the camera lens when she, you know, pops that button on that, on that jukebox and dances towards you. Um, everything she does is very specific and, when you realize, you know, her character's story at the end after everything's over, um, you you realize that this this isn't I mean, it's it's a movie about two different things. It is a movie about two kids, you know, like sorta of like taking that next step into what their life is gonna be, but it's more well not more, but it is also a story about a woman who is looking back on her life and looking at the choices that she's made and realizing that, you know, in kind of making very conscious decisions for the time that she has left. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see, you see her unravel and you like, you feel like, you know, she makes a couple phone calls to her husband. And I think that when I watched this previously, that was, you know, filler to me. Whereas now that's the whole movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I was really, really struck with her and impressed with her. And I really do think that this, this whole movie, um, rests on her shoulders and, and she is really incredible in it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I told, I mean, Ron, I totally agree with that. And I was actually going to ask you guys, uh, you know, kind of what characters resonated with you and which one you kind of saw yourselves a little bit in. And, and like, even for me, kind of like you, Ron, 
you know, if I, I think, you know, I didn't watch this when I was 19. Uh, but if I had been at that stage or if I had been, you know, 2021 20, in, in the height of kind of college life, right. And the people that you're surrounded with and that social context, I definitely would have seen myself uh, more with Diego, uh, Diego's character and Gael's and uh, like just conversations that they were having. I'm like, yep, I've had that conversation. Yep. I've had a friend or, or a colleague or someone that I know have that conversation in front of me before. Right. Uh, as agnostic as it is. But for me, now that I'm, you know, much older, um, I, I definitely see myself more too as, as kind of Maribel and her kind of, you know, looking for, for freedom. Right. And kind of looking back at her life and the, the conversation that you mentioned too of, of kind of when they're on the, on the phone call or one of the phone calls, she makes her, her husband or her husband. Uh, I, I remember she talks about, you know, how like the old lady that she met, who's like 95 years old. I right. Think, right. Like yeah. imagine like what she's experienced, but also imagine like what she hasn't experienced. Mm-hmm. And that, like that, like I had a full stop at that point in the movie. Cause I was like, Holy shit. Like that's basically kind of where I'm at. Cause I'm like in, I mean, all right, full disclosure, I'm like, I'm 28, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of in this, like, happy medium where you're still kind of trying to, like, you thought in college coming out, you knew who who you were, right? You knew who you wanted to be as far as, like, career and stuff like that. Uh, But now, just even with these six, seven years of experience that I've had, I find myself kind of questioning, like, all right, did I make the right decisions? Am I on the career path that I want to be? Do, did I even like who I was back then or right. coming out of college? So yeah, it just made me really reflect and resonate with that character and think about like, you know, holy shit. Like, uh, I guess I'm getting old. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in, I mean, and in the grand scheme of things too, like, yeah, I mean, that's not that old. Um, right. right. But, Absolutely. you know, and I'm sure that like anyone in their, you know, like 50s, 60s or whatever could listen to this and be like, oh, you guys don't know anything. But, um, and we, I mean, we don't, but you know, Luis's character is only 29 in the movie, you know? And so like to, you know, to die before 30 and to know what's coming, um, it really does say a lot about like, you know, the choices that we make matter because you never know when everything can be taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I mean, some people aren't even having these conversations too. Like some people won't realize until much later in life, you know, kind of questioning what the decisions they made and, when they were younger or, you know, twenties, thirties, et cetera. Right. So mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, even though we may not have the experience, I mean, seven years is not a lot of time. Like you mentioned, um, the fact that we're even having the conversation, uh, is kind of wild. And I think it not puts us ahead, but I think we'll get more out of life because we are having these conversations. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah, that was, Deep stuff. Um, yeah, uh, what do I want to talk about? Um, yeah, shifting gears, uh, like, instead of just about, like, the, obviously, like, the very emotional, very, like, introspective aspect of the movie, like, as being human, but I want to talk about, like, the very introspective uh, view of, like, Mexico at that moment. Like, it was, I mean, I think it's incredible what Cuaron has done here. Um, so. Obviously, this is like a very. I feel like I feel like it becomes more obvious that it's an incredibly political film. If yeah. uh, if you were not only not only like like on rewatches, but also on like um, 
if you were at all knowledgeable of uh, Mexican culture, like Guti uh, said it in the in the historical context, but um, the last names that every single one of these characters has is incredibly important. Um, so Julio, his last name is Zapata, and Zapata, um, it's almost like saying like in 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 the United States, if you were to say uh, Lincoln or Washington, like mm-hmm. that name carries weight, a lot of weight. Emiliano Zapata, he's uh, he was basically like the the peasant, well, the, the, you, they're called the peasant revolutionary in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So like, yep. um, and Julio obviously being portrayed as lower class, lower middle class in um in the movie. Then Tenoch, and Tenoch, um, he's obviously portrayed as more higher class, and his last name is Iturbide, and another very iconic name in Mexican history. Um, as soon as Mexico gains independence from Spain, um. Uh, Mexico actually becomes a monarchy for a bit, you know, uh, and he was Mexico's emperor, uh, Agustin de, de Iturbide. So, um, yeah, like, it's just this intensely political uh, last names. And then, oh, of course, also Luisa, uh, her last name is Cortés, Hernán Cortés, uh, mm-hmm. famous Spaniard who conquered and stole Mexico, you know. Um, and it's just... Like once once he sprinkles in those names, like you just start looking everywhere, and then the way that Cuaron uses the four, not just the foreground of like what's going on, but the background of everything that's going on. So, um, in the background we see, uh, like we see, there's, uh, well, okay, in the background we see marches, we see violence, we see uh, poverty. Um, we see police, uh, policemen coming out, uh, of a pickup truck, um, a police pickup truck with, like, big old guns, um, you see, like, you're, you're basically seeing this, this country, uh, that is going through its own change, it's like, it's almost like going from adolescence into, uh, you know, becoming more adult, becoming more, um, introspective about what it needs to do. Because it is just absolutely everywhere in this movie. How, like, um, you know, I remember uh, in one of the interviews, Cuaron and uh, Lubezki were talking about how, like, people would ask him, why are you filming Mexico? Like, why are you filming uh, the dirty streets? Why are you filming um, the countryside? Why are you filming all these other things? Uh, Well, there's so much more beauty in Mexico. And, like, sure, there's, like, aesthetic beauty in Mexico, but what... Cuaron was going for was like for that realism specifically because of like what he wanted to touch on for the politics happening um in Mexico at the time and then um and just like uh Julio and Tenoch are having to grow into like adulthood and to like you know become more serious it's kind of like Mexico also having to become more serious especially as soon as uh Pri uh the or in English what is it IRP uh, or IPR, or something like that. But um, in, in Mexico, it's pretty. Everyone knows that it's pretty. Um, but he was in control for 70, like, over 70 years. Like, it's it's unheard of to think. Like, it, imagine in the U.S., like, one party ruling for 70 years. It's, um, it's just, like, and, yeah, just like, and a lot of people, yeah, in, in Latin America also know about this, about the perfect dictatorship, about how, like, this is, an insane moment that like um pan the the 
that Vicente Fox is with his political party, Pan, and they they basically, you know, beat Pri, and like, um, it's the first time you see Mexico like actually being, you know, democratic in some way because yeah, even though you think you may think like, um, like it, it, being in Mexico, you know, like, there's a lot of corruption, and so you may think like, oh well, these it's it's the same government, and, like it's no matter how you see it, like at least in the public view, you're seeing you're seeing some sort of maturity happening where like mm-hmm. opinions are changing, uh the politics are changing, uh, you know, it's almost like Mexico trying to it's a coming of age story for Mexico, you know, like you have to grow up and um, you know, embrace the democracy yes, absolutely. that you once had. Yeah. It's just it's incredible. Like I I just it's it's insane. Like Quaron, oh my gosh. <laughs> like this is incredibly layered no. text incredibly it's it's it's, it's incredible um but anyways I, I talked for a long time so <laughs> no no i mean everything you're saying is, everything you're saying is is right and it's it's not just issues you know obviously you know it's a mexican director you know it's filmed in mexico and it's very much telling the story of mexico but these are issues that are all over central america and latin america in general you know like for me I don't know. I don't think I've mentioned this to you guys, but uh, Nicaragua is currently kind of in a, in a revolution mm-hmm. of sorts. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. You know, we've had a dictator for a very long time, Daniel Ortega. I went to Nicaragua back in 2019, I believe, for vacation with two of my friends. Uh, and the day after my birthday, the revolution started in Nicaragua. So I was there firsthand when I was seeing what you're talking about, you know, policemen and in trucks, Hercito, the army, in trucks coming into towns and attacking students because for whatever reason, I don't know, apparently students are the only ones in Latin America, or it seems like, are the only ones who have the balls to kind of kind yeah, of stand yeah. up to the to these oppressors. And what's crazy about that story and that experience that I had is my grandma's house in Granada, uh, Nicaragua, uh, she, her house is very much in the town square. So she was right next to all the protests and stuff. And my parents, um, or my mom was with her in the house and me and my friends were at the hotel just across the street. Uh, and when it started, I couldn't even get to her. Um, and finally, when I was able to get to her after, you know, they kind of like trashed the town plaza and, and all these things kind of happens at the Randocuetes, like, you know, fireworks and everything like that, um, kind of used as like a scare tactic, uh, for, for peasants and whatnot. Uh, you know, I talked to my mom and my mom was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to the United States because mm-hmm. it's not, I already lived this once when, you know, I immigrated with your father back in the seventies and, you know, the whole fall of some Samosa, who was another, dictator at the time um and the the struggle that the country went through and and i I never want to live it again like she was basically traumatized from that experience and she even mentioned to me that uh because uh, i don't know if it's typical in mexico but they have these like town you know spanish townhomes right and in the middle there's always kind of an open Kind of like an open courtyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, my mom said that they even like threw a smoke grenade 
uh, in oh, there yeah. and tear gas. And if if one of my you know one of my grandma because my grandma's pretty up there, if one of her helpers wasn't around, that would have like hit my grandma and my mom in her face. So basically, I guess what the story is all to tell is that these are situations that are still going all over that are happening all over Latin America. And I don't know if for you guys it felt this way, but for me, it never felt out of place when he was showing mm-hmm. us all these shots amongst the story. It felt like it was all masterfully kind of woven in. Uh, and it it just made me think about like how many, so you know, we're in this current political and cultural climate here in the United States that sometimes, you know, the, the media that we're getting nowadays is just so... Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it just feels like it's shoehorned in, right, to make a point. Uh, and sometimes those messages are, you know, and a lot of times those messages are really important to share. I think for me, the most powerful stories are the ones that are int- intelligently written with great character arcs and stories that are able to kind of get an emotional response out of you. And the lessons that they share with you stay for you for life. I mean, we could, we had talked about Coco and, and Pixar, uh, mm-hmm. on our first episode and they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're great at doing that. Right. There's messages like, especially if you grew up in those nineties, uh, kind of golden age of Disney Pixar, like, you know, exactly kind of what I'm talking about in the films that have resonated with you the most, you know, from the Lion King, Hunchback of Notre Dame, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so for me, the way that he's able to do that and because of the fact that it's not done as much today, uh, like I feel like there's not as many films that do it so well and interweave it so well today, it just only makes this film look even more brilliant. And I mean, f- for me, it's just I wish that, you know, instead of just being lazy and kind of giving us, you know, a surface message. I wish that films would, or at least maybe screenwriters or, or producers, executives would have some confidence in their audiences that if they told an intelligent story, people would understand the message behind it. Um, so those, that's, that's Goody's Ted talk on, on <laughs> and their social and political context and how to interweave them more <laughs> efficiently. Quaron is just, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a master, you know? And, um, uh, the last point I had on, like, with, uh, with, that had to do with, like, the classes is, um, one, one line reading, um, when, uh, Julio and Tenoch are, uh, like, really going at it when they're really yelling at each other. Like, the huge class difference, like, when Tenoch tells Julio, um, se te tenía que salir un arcote, güey. Um, which in, you know, it's, it's very, like, um, Mexican slang, but like naco, naco, naco is like being like saying like lower class, um, and he's basically telling Julio like, like like I soon like when when things got real, like he just like decided to hit him with like, oh you're lo- you're a lower class than I am. And yeah, it's like calling him a hick. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like, uh, yeah, great, great. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. Yeah, I didn't know the American equivalent, mm-hmm. um, but um, or the English equivalent, but uh, uh yeah, when when they say. Like said that the niggas are not no nakote. I was like, dang. Like, I was, I don't know. He was like Quaron. Like the right. Like I said, the writing here is like insane. It isn't because not like no other point uh, in the dialogue do they ever 
uh, touch on that. They touch on it like with the narrator talking about how uh, Julio, the way that he acted in the uh, Noche's bathroom, whereas the Noche and how he would act in um, Julio's bathroom. Uh, and it's like, but other than that, like it's very, very light in terms of um, the dialogue, but it's like ever present in like the the background that they're in, like when they have the wedding and the president's there and like the president being there is even more important than the wedding yeah. itself. You know, um, it's just, it's just insane. So, uh, Guti, uh, any final thoughts and, uh, your rating on this movie? Yeah. So final thoughts. Um, I'm glad you actually mentioned the, the Mexican slang because I'm glad I watched the subtitles because contrary to, to popular belief here in, in the United States, there are different words in different Latin American countries that uh, we don't quite understand from one another. So <laughs> it was great that I watched the one subtitles because if not, I definitely would not have picked up on the uh, on the you know. The, I think Cordon said that the the Mexican slang was specific to Mexico City. I don't know if that's uh, if I'm remembering uh, it's correctly. yeah, it's specific to Mexico City. Um, but I feel like just like with the United States and Hollywood, how like the Hollywood accent has become like the American accent. I feel like a lot of the slang and things like that, that's used in, um, in Mexican film, because a lot of it is in La Ciudad de Mexico. Um, a lot of it's very similar, like way eh, chingon, eh, mm -hmm. no mames, like all that stuff. It's, it's ever present all throughout Mexico. But anyways, I mean, this film, everything that we've mentioned is everything that I kind of love about it, right? The way he's able to blend in historical and, and social and political context all together without, you know, kind of beating a dead horse for lack of a better expression. Uh, you know, kind of his inspirations, the, the classic film with like Lubitsch and the French uh, New Wave. And just the fact that like it's unabashed filmmaking really you know like he you know he just went out there with chivo i mean chivo beautiful cinematography right but uh, he just goes out there and gives no you know doesn't really give a shit uh about the rules the boundaries and it's just it's real you know and it's a lot that i've been able to kind of resonate with this film and and after watching azkaban and roma I mean, I think I think I'm ready to say that Alfonso Curion might be my favorite Latin American filmmaker. Yes, uh, I mean ever. I mean, I it, granted, I haven't. You know, I need to do some. That's what this I, podcast is all about. Watching, of, of, <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I need to watch more films with, uh, uh, made by Buñuel and stuff. So I guess we'll wait and see. But for me, right now, Alfonso Curion is he's at the very, very top and. Yeah, this movie is easily five stars and earns yes. an easy spot in Goody's Hall of Fame. Quite on. This dude is just on fire. Ron, your your thoughts. Uh okay, I just I did want to quickly mention, did either of you notice the Harold and Mod poster? I in, did uh, right in the beginning of his uh, girlfriend's right room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was that was a nice little touch. Uh one thing I wanted to bring up uh Daniel Jimenez Cacho, who's the narrator in this. Uh we previously saw him as Tito the uh, mortician in Kronos. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. He's also yeah. yeah, he's also the lead in um uh, in Solo Con um Alfonso's first Solo Con film. Pareja, and, yeah. Yeah, and uh wow. he's I he's quickly becoming one of my one of my favorite actors. He was also in uh, Memoria too, which I saw earlier this year. Um and so I'm I'm going to definitely going to seek out more of his stuff. Uh I mean he's he just does the narration in this, but uh it 
usually I hate voiceover narration stuff. <laughs> um, but the way that it's used in this film, I was really endeared by it. And it, I really do think it added like, um, you know, an incredible amount of, you know, um, context and, and stuff to the story. Uh, yeah. You know, I already said that, you know, I view it differently than um, I had when I previously watched it and everything. Um, but, you know, similar to what Goody said, like between this and a lot of the other stuff that he's done. Um, yeah, he's I, I think he's on my my Mount Rushmore of, of directors like Ooh. I'm uh, I'm so all in on on everything like the way that he handles politics the way that he handles interpersonal relationships and stuff um just a little touches like in in this one similar to, to roma there's like little hints of you know like the indigenous housekeepers and mm. um you know like just little very obviously personal things like that uh elevate these films you know beyond the typical you know typical hollywood stuff and the, again, just seeing seeing this movie through through a thirty eight year old lens, and <laughs> you know, um, seeing the multiple journeys, you know, these kids and this woman and this country, um, yeah, I'm I personally think that this is a masterpiece. And oh yeah, I'm, say it, Ron. Yeah, say it. <laughs> Five stars. Oh yes. Oh my goodness. Uh, this I, I'm so happy right now. I am so so happy right now. Um, yeah, like quite on the master, quite on the master. Um, uh, okay. So my final thoughts. Uh, I'll go quick fire since we're um we're like way over. But uh, <laughs> uh let me see. Um, so quick fire things. Uh, Niall and Diego are I think are perfectly cast here. Um, they were both emerging stars in the film industry. And Gael had just finished what, uh, filming, uh, with Iñárritu, um, and Diego Luna, he was very, he was very well known in, like, uh, uh, the and stuff, but, um, Gael and Diego would always be in casting meetings together growing up, um, auditioning for the same parts, and they had this friendship, but this underlying rivalry that was mirrored amazingly for the screen, for the roles. Like, that was, I mean, uh, Absolutely incredible. I know that Cuaron wanted Gael first and didn't really want Diego because of uh, the whole telenovela thing, but um, oh, overall, I'm so glad that they, they got those two. Um, what else? Uh, Marco Antonio Solis on the dance sequence, uh, the song, uh, yeah. absolutely amazing. I mean, he's a Mexican treasure. He's the lead singer for Los Bokis. He went there one solo, but he, um, I mean, he's an incredibly iconic singer, so uh, love to see that. I can never be a Charolastra because I support Club America, Grandisisisimo America, and um, Los Charolastras, sorry, <laughs> you know, 
Um, they're just haters, so you know. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, last last thing is that like we we went this whole podcast and we didn't even talk about Cuarón and his long shots. Oh my god! Yeah, I, yeah, I know. Oh my also, god! The white shots. The white, yeah, the white shots, shots that, that he uses here, like literally the people and the environment are. It's just you know, incredible. Insane. It is incredible. Like, like, uh, the like the main dance sequence that was like seven minutes long, uncut. Like that is, like the amount of blocking rehearsal, uh, just the the dialogue memorization that all the actors need, um. Like, if you mess up even a little bit on minute five, you just got to restart everything. Like, it is insane. Um, the use of mirrors that he does. Yeah. Like, oh my goodness. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what else there is to say. Like, this is a five-star movie. This is a 15-star banger. Oh my goodness. Um, I just, I'm just in love with Quadron and his movies. He, he's, he's incredible. He's absolutely incredible. Um, I know that he says like the three movies that he feels like are most thematic, thematically similar um, from his filmography are Roma, Utomatamien, and Children of Men. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what a trilogy! Like, oh my gosh, the, like he's uh, I I don't I, I'm speechless. Like literally, this guy's he's 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 one of the best of, of all time. Like he. I don't know how, I don't know how other people can even make movies after this dude. Like he's he's amazing, um, and I mean everyone's always talking about Luis Buñuel being a horny director, Quentin Tarantino being a horny director, <laughs> but Cuarón with this movie alone just blows them all out of the water, pun intended. Like it is, it's incredible. Cuarón, another fight. Oh, oh my gosh. Uh, but yeah, th- this is incredible. Let's see what uh, some of our friends had to say about it también. So let me just pull up Letterbox and check to see some of the ratings that we have here. Um, one of the ratings from Not Jadakiss, one of the best movies of the century. Five stars. Century, people. Sent. 100. Absolutely incredible. Uh, thank you so much, Small Tony. Um... A review from Yoli uh, revisited one of my old favorites. I remember seeing this in theaters when it came out and absolutely loving it. It's so funny, cheeky, sexy, smart, daring, sad, poignant, beautiful. Adoro esta película. Um, I was also about 20 years old and crushing hard on the Oluna and Gal García Bernal. Uh, Yoli, you know you know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, always really enjoyed the soundtrack. Yeah, the soundtrack. Uh, incredible. But yeah, Yoli continues. Always really enjoyed the soundtrack too. Five stars. Thank you so much, Yoli. Um, I mean, Cuaron, he's, he's, I mean, he's, he's on it. Everyone loves this dude. Dylan, another five star review. Uh, it's a very, very long review, so I, I can't get to the whole thing, but he does end it with, can we just take a second to appreciate that Cuaron followed this up with Harry Potter? An insane <laughs> flex and one of the wildest one-two punches in movie history. I totally agree, Dylan. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, this is, this is just an incredible movie. Uh, if you'd like to hear your review, uh, shout it out here, uh, make sure to tag your letterbox review with Real Latinos. Um, that's R-E-E-L, 
L-A-T-I-N-O-S. Um, and so uh, if you also want to get in touch with us, not just through Letterboxd, uh, you can go ahead and go to any of our social media feeds uh, with Twitter and Instagram at Real Latinos. That's at R-E-E-L-L-A-T-I-N-O-S. Or to our Gmail account, reallatinos at gmail.com. R-E-E-L-L-A-T-I-N-O-S. Uh, send us some questions. Send us uh, movie recommendations. Send us, um, you know, your road trip story uh, or any other saucy details. I don't know if that is going to be able to get read on the pod. But, um, yeah, let us know. Get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. So, um, that leads us to Ron's Latino-approved recommendations. Are there any of this yeah, if you want to continue the Coron conversation, uh, I recommend you check out Popcorn Martini Soup. Their episode Hit the Road. Anna and Jess talk about road trip movies, and they talk about Utumama Tambien. They also mention several other movies, including my favorite movie of all time, Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. Oh, uh, man. Popcorn Martini Soup. What a podcast, by the way. And uh, I, I think they're at TIFF right now, and they're getting to see the new Park Chan work, and I am so jealous. Is Park Chan yeah, same. Is Park Chan work Latino? I don't know. Let's cover old boy anyways. Oh, anyways, yeah. <laughs> uh, keep on going, sorry. Yeah, Anna, Jess, give us the scoop on that, all right? Um, also, uh, you know, we mention them every episode because, you know, they're the reason that we all came together. But 70mm, uh, they did Latin American Movies Month last year, and one of the movies they covered was Roma. Uh, they had a lot of really beautiful things to say about it. And, you know, if you want to listen to three dudes cry over, you know, a masterpiece, um, that's you know a One definitely episode. good place to go and you get uh, they also voicemail from me amazing <laughs> yeah and yeah and, and ismail's uh you know featured in that app um also too if you want to be a patron of theirs uh they cover the entire harry potter series including prisoner of azkaban the best oh, harry potter movie yes love it and Gucci, do you want to yeah so uh kind of doing research for this for this film, uh, I actually found an article by uh, a movie critic and probably one of my favorite uh, follows on Twitter, uh, Carlos Aguilar. Yeah, so he he covered Itu Mama Tambien uh, for an anniversary that it recently had. And so I really recommend that article. And really, I, I recommend following his Twitter account. He spotlights a lot of Latinx projects, films, TV shows, writers, ex- you name it. Um, and he's really a champion for for our community. So please feel free to give them a follow and, and please read that article as well. It's, it's beautifully written and it's, and it definitely goes through all the complexities of Itumama Tambien, uh, and as a perfect addendum to, uh, to our podcast. But yeah, let's get into next week's pick. Love, betrayal, death, a fatalistic car crash in Mexico city sets off a chain of events in the lives of three persons. A young man aching to run off with his sister-in-law, a supermodel, and a homeless man. Their lives are catapulted into unforeseen circumstances, instigated by the seemingly inconsequential destiny of a dog. Next week, we will be covering Amores Perros. Year came out was 2000, directed by Alejandro González Iñárritu. I mean, I love this man. He made Birdman. One of my favorite movies of all time. And Amores Perros, his first movie. But we'll get into that next week. Um, so yeah, directed by Alejandro González Iñárritu. Stars Gael García Bernal. Making his third appearance on the pod. Uh, Coco, this, and now Amores Perros. 
I mean, I can't wait. Um, pues son los tres amigos, ¿no? It's Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuarón, and Alejandro González Iñárritu. So we wanted to cover one from each one. Um, and I mean, judging by my voice, you probably know that I really like this movie. <laughs> so uh, I promise you, uh, we will be journeying outside of Mexico after that pick. Um, but we'll get more into that next week. Um, so yeah, thank you all so much for joining us again. Um, make sure to like, uh, if you like this, <laughs> if you like the podcast, um, give us five stars on Spotify, on Apple podcasts, um, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, make sure to share this with everyone. Uh, as Ron said, probably don't share it <laughs> with everybody, everybody in your family, but, um, I mean, it's an incredible movie and deserves to be talked about. So make sure to share it and uh, make sure you're subscribed so that you can hear us talk about Latin American movies every week. So thank you so much, everybody. Adios. Y hasta la próxima. Bye-bye. Real Latinos is a podcast written, produced, and hosted by Christian Gutierrez, Ron Jimenez, and Ismael Villas Molina. Mixed and edited by Ron Jimenez. Artwork provided by Elizabeth Jimenez, Ron Jimenez, and Ismael Villegas Molina. Original music provided by Tono Nomata. Muchas gracias y hasta la próxima. Ron, if you're hearing this, I'm sorry. This is our about this. Me, 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 me. Am I back? Uh, uh, can you hear me? Okay, good. Okay, great. Oof, yeah. Okay, that was a really, really, really long episode. Ron, I am not je I'm not jealous of you. You're going to have a lot of editing on your hands. It is fucking insane how much we talked. Um, even if I'm the last night in Soho guy, you know, I, I, you know I, 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 at least I know what I like.